We can't just talk about anti-Semitism. We've got to commit to fighting anti-Semitism. Hey, welcome everybody to season two, episode two of Staffing Safety Society. I'm Kevin Trapani. And I'm Paige Backwell. Today, we're going to discuss the growing threat of anti-Semitism with our guest, Emily Snyder, who we're delighted to have. I'll just start with a couple of thoughts. 3,700 anti-Semitic incidents in the United States in 2022. How do we respond? As I mentioned, our guest today, Emily Snyder, the Senior Project Manager for the Anti-Defamation League. Paige, how about introducing us to Emily? I am happy to do that. We're so happy to have Emily with us. She started out at uh, the University of Florida's Hello. In the first few weeks of starting that job, Charlottesville happened. It's kind of probably shaped where she's at today. And now she's had to kind of find her feet in a new job while planning programming, hardening targets to make sure students felt safe and expressing their Jewish identity. Emily, I read a quote from you. There's nothing quite like needing to have an armed guard to walk your dog at work. I'm trying hard to imagine that, Kevin, of the feeling of saying that out loud. Tree of Life shooting happened. She kind of wanted to be a part of that solution to keep communities safe, to help them to pray and express their identities in any way they see fit. With ADL, there was a logical place for her to look what her next steps were. As stressful that time was, ADL was a powerful force for good. And I think Emily would say a powerful force for her career. So welcome, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. Emily, give us a little background to why you needed an armed guard. Were the threats so strong on the UF campus at that time? The day Richard Spencer was speaking on campus, there was a credible threat to both the Hillel building and the Chabad building. My organization hired armed guards, and I had brought my dog, not just for myself, but for our students to kind of distract from everything that was going on. That armed guard walked with me while I walked my dog during the day, an experience I'll never forget. It helps you tell your story today, I'm sure. Well, thank you for your courage on that day and on many others. I'd like us to talk a little bit about the nature of anti-Semitism. If you look at some of the most extreme examples of hate, you often find that those groups and individuals involved don't just hate one group of people. They hate everyone who does not fit into their own personal identities. The white supremacist movement in the United States, more broadly, very horrifically racist, Islamophobic, they're homophobic, and also anti-Semitic. Right. So anybody who's other, it's so difficult because those movements often depend on anti-Semitic tropes. The anti-Semitic activities are not limited to one side of the political spectrum or the other. That is true. We do often see in the United States more violence from the traditional far right, but anti-Semitism certainly spans that entire political spectrum. I was really surprised in digging into some of the research on the right of the use of these tropes. Donald Trump's final ad in the 2016 presidential campaign where he talked about, quote, the global special interests. For the global special interest, they partner with these people that don't have your good in mind. The political establishment that is trying to stop us is the same group responsible. And then there were the images of a financier, a banker, the chair of the Federal Reserve, all of whom are Jews. 
that was really the trope of Jewish global control. Not that long afterwards, the representative Ilhan Omar, the Democrat from Minnesota, complained that U.S. policy toward Israel, her quote, is all about the Benjamins, baby. And that was really an age-old stereotype of Jewish power and control. In that case, your organization, the ADL, responded, quote, the notion that wealthy Jews are controlling the government is a longstanding anti-Semitic trope and one of the pillars of modern anti-Semitism. Are those good examples of the use of a trope to gin up kind of the group behind you, almost a dog whistle in some ways? I would say those are prime examples of when the anti-Semitic tropes of power and greed are deployed. Sometimes it's dog whistle language. So it's harder for us to pinpoint and say that is anti-Semitic. It's a little bit more nefarious. And then other times there's no big dotted line to anti-Semitism and it's outright very clear. This is thousands of years old. Talk a little bit about your work. And and Paige, I know you want to dive into what we learned from the audit of anti-Semitic incidents. I do want to dive into a couple of numbers that the audit kind of lays out for us. Each year, the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, tracks incidents. This is part of Emily's work. They track anti-Semitic harassment, vandalism, assault all through the United States. And they have been publishing this information since 1979 or so, letting it be kind of front of mind for folks. I think we've got some disturbing facts here in this report. The highest recorded frequency of these incidents for any year they've done this on record. Unbelievable. 3,697 incidents just in 2022. That is a 36% increase in one year. So from 2021 to 2022, but an 86% increase since 2017. And there's not this single cause why there's a lot of different ways they've kind of broken this down in the audit. There's been a 102% increase in white supremacist incidents, 49% increase in education setting incidents, which we care deeply about. We work every single day with Jewish community centers and what they're doing for their community. And then 69% increase in incidents towards Orthodox Jews. I don't even know how we use these types of percentages in conversation, Kevin, but a 1,037% increase in bomb threats. Think about the trauma that a bomb threat carries and creates. Right. And those numbers, like just over and over again, with that type of percentage increase, repetitive trauma that that causes. No mass casualty incidents. There was only one fatality, but that doesn't tell the story. Obviously, tracking the data is important. It helps us spot the trends and the work that Emily and this organization does has a huge impact on us all understanding where we are. Emily, what happens when that phone rings or the website lights up? Oftentimes, have an administrative assistant or a front desk office worker who are monitoring those phones or those emails. I hope everyone has protocols in place on how to handle that, whether it's recording it, taking your cell phone and calling 911 immediately, coming in via email, taking a screenshot immediately. Those types of quick, in-the-moment action items should be front and center for anybody who's in that position and can help get the ball rolling on law enforcement response and community organizational response, in addition to obviously alerting the folks who are in the building and activating those protocols as well. Once the law enforcement response is over, we do collect all that information, whether tracking IP addresses or connecting some of the dots if we're seeing similar language being used. There's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. You've been a leader on the ground when there have been bomb threats. How do you balance the emotion 
personal preservation, preserving the lives of the people in your care, and also understanding that it's a part of the kind of the fabric of our society may well just be a threat. How do you react appropriately? That's a difficult question to answer. We do everything we can to collect that information. There have been a lot of anti-Semitic bomb threats. A lot of our institutions have gotten, dare I say, used to this. It is what everybody plans for. That's why we have those security protocols in place. We talk a lot about how kids who are taught to dive under their desks or run into a closet uh, for mass shooter drills and how that creates a new normal and almost an acceptance and what that means to a kid of how hard it is to plan for a future that you don't know you're going to have. Paige, I know you want to talk a little bit about what our listeners should be doing, right? Right. I mean, I think, Emily, you've got some folks listening today that run Jewish community centers. I mean, even those that run other organizations that are community focused, that invite community members in, you know, what's your advice? I think first and foremost, we need to be aware of the problem. We need to build the infrastructure and have that be readily in place for when incidents do occur. If something anti-Semitic is said by a teacher or by somebody, you know, in a position of power, ways to report that incident without that fear of being punished. You're talking to an array of audience members today, some in Jewish community centers, some in other like YMCAs and camps. One of the things I've heard you talk about is the importance of education. We know that providing education for a broad audience to address bias and hate in all of its forms is essential to tackling all of the isms. I personally think that community organizations are perfectly equipped to provide off-ramps to extremism or, or hateful ideology. Community organizations can provide curriculum or resources and can engage with other similar organizations that are housed in different communities to help offer a wide range of cultures and ideologies, which I believe is essential in this fight against hate. Many bullying incidents can simply happen by an individual not meeting a Jewish person or having awareness or exposure to Jewish culture, as an example. Many of us across this country only have experience dealing with other groups of people through media. That's a challenge we have to overcome. And community organizations are certainly beacons to help foster that type of engagement. It sounds like what you're suggesting is a Seder for there to be multi-faith folks and maybe put it in a setting that's not the traditional, you know, not at the JCC, but going out into community. Are those the kinds of things you're talking about? Absolutely. I know we started this talking about some of my experience at the University of Florida Hillel when Richard Spencer came to campus. One of the biggest parts of that healing process was having an interface Shabbat members across the community came together and then broke bread together. All this hate was brought to our local community. We persevered through that and are stronger because of it. The love that's shown when you share a meal together, right, Kevin? Oh my gosh. And the idea of Muslims, Jews, Christians coming together, and even the non-believers being able to share community. Paige, you and I ask ourselves this question all the time. Well, who is it that's going to do that? Well, it's us, right? Raise your hand, right? Emily, you've talked about how insidious hate groups are in terms of getting their message out than they used to be. What does that mean for us? I think that means that we too have to get more nimble, find ways to innovate and collaborate and support each other. Just like we have access to the internet, so do the haters. Take advantage of our ability to connect, to work together and and create those spaces. We have more in common than we have differences. 
Mm, I love that. Those platforms were built to bring us together, but they're being used to drive us apart. Let's reclaim the platform. It sounds like what you're saying. Yep. Absolutely. This is a scary topic. And so what do you want people to know as we kind of wrap up this conversation today? Just as you said, this is scary and triggering. There are many organizations out here doing our very best to make sure that there are resources and security protocols in place for us all to continue to engage in the vibrant, beautiful aspects of our identities and our cultures and our society. I don't want people to hear this and lean into that impulse of not wanting to engage. The Jewish community in the United States is stronger than ever before. We have partnerships with many different organizations to try to tackle this problem together. Continue that work in your own communities and in your own micro niches. We can do the work from the top, but that work doesn't trickle down automatically. We need to all work in this together. Being Jewish has to be more than our experience dealing with anti-Semitism. It's just a reminder of don't lose your community. Don't lose who you are. Love each other. Reach out to each other. And that community is not just those that may be coming out of a a halil or a community center. It's the community that you live in. It's your neighbors. It's your friends. It's your colleagues. And it's everybody. And I just love that you've wrapped that up as let's not lose sight of the beautiful part of that, the love in that. You bet. And and Paige, it's time for us to wrap up. Emily, thank you for that inspiring message and and for your, your guidance. I feel like you've just called us to what I think is a core element of the Jewish faith, which is to heal the world. That's what I think all major faith communities are called to do and to be. And I think you helped us to understand today how to operate in that kind of dual world. I've got to keep the door locked, but I also need to get out into community and create a sense of community for all where we are not othered. I'm grateful for the Anti-Defamation League. I want to advise our listeners to go to the ADL website and take advantage of those resources. Paige, your final thoughts for today? Yeah, I mean, like I just said about the community and how important that is, I love that Emily closed on that. But I also want to say this to our listeners. She comes with a light that is joyful and that wants to share and educate. She is a great example of what we all can do when we leave here or stop listening today. That's who we should be as a community together. Let's let our last words be takun olam, to heal the world. Let me read us out. Staffing, Safety, Society is created by the Redwoods Group. It's produced by Stephen Dosher, Melanie Young, Paige Bagwell, Piper Kessler, and me. If you like the show, tell a friend or leave us a review. It means a lot to us. If you have topic suggestions or feedback of any kind, we'd love to hear that. Click on the link in the show notes or send an email to community at redwoodsgroup.com. Again, community at redwoodsgroup.com, and we'll get back to you. Staffing, Safety, Society is recorded weekly in North Carolina. I'm Kevin Trapani. And I'm Paige Bagwell. Thanks, y'all, for listening. Thanks.